Praise the Lord. It's the Word of God that changes our lives. It's God's promise. It's God's will made evident in His Word. And uh, the importance of declaring it, teaching, learning is so important to us, not just to have knowledge. We've got to believe what God says. The gospel is powerful to those who believe. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we, uh, we, we like to major on teaching uh, the word. There are times when the spirit of the Lord begins to move and we don't have that opportunity, but that's not the norm. Uh, it's, we want the spirit of God to move, but we also have to have the word of God as well. So a little bit different teaching tonight. Um, I was just thinking about something as I was reading this passage. It sparked something in me, and so we're just kind of going to do a little bit of digging in and see what we can learn. Um, I called it King David from rags to riches. I've preached on King David before. I've preached on this text before, but we're going to look at a little different aspect of his life. So we're going to use the text, First Chronicles 22, 11 through 16. And the Bible says, Now, my son, the Lord be with you so that you may succeed in building the house of the Lord your God. As he has spoken concerning you, David is talking to his son Solomon. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you're careful to observe the statutes and the rules of the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Fear not, do not be dismayed. With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord, 100,000 talents of gold, million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there's so much of it, timber and stone too, I've provided. To these you must add. You have an abundance of workmen, stone cutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Arise and work, the Lord be with you. Then in First Chronicles 29, 2 through 5, a couple more verses that we want to look at. David says, So I've provided for the house of my God so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze. The iron for the things of iron and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I've provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Now, by way of introduction, I'll tell you how I got into this. I, for some reason, as I was reading through the book of 1 Samuel, I was struck by the fact that David, and you've got to remember, David is not from a prominent family. He's not from a kingly family. He's actually the rejected shepherd boy of the household of Jesse. And it just hit me as I was reading through this time that David actually went from having nothing to within a period of 40 years. And I say 40 years because he actually became king when he was 30 years old. He was king over Hebron. And then seven years later, he was king over all Israel. And he was reigned for 40 years. And within a period of 40 years, he went from having absolutely nothing to being one of the wealthiest individuals in the history of humanity. How did David go from having nothing to being worth, by the estimates of some today, in excess of $200 billion? What does the scripture reveal about his starting point and where he ended up? How does this knowledge help us in our walk with God as well? Those are the things we want to examine. And before 
let me just give you this caveat. Um, I'm not in any way uh, teaching or preaching with the intent that all of us are going to be wealthy. And, uh, none of that. I just want to show and bring to light what God did. Specifically, we're looking at David uh, as far as his finances are concerned and how God was able to take him from nothing to something. But, you know, maybe you're, you're not even at, you know, just poor. Maybe you're in deficit. You're owing. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about maybe your health is poor. Maybe, maybe you're, you're uh, emotionally you're, you're distressed. You're not even at, at, at even par. You're below that. Well, if God can do this for someone in a short amount of time in such a drastic way financially, don't you think he can do the same thing physically, emotionally, or anything? Right? So it's not about money, but we're going to use money to just highlight what God can do in an individual's life when he wants to, okay? So first point we're going to look at is where did he start? Where did David start? Well, we're going to look at his father's house because that's where we pick up in the Bible uh, his life and his story. First Samuel 16 and 1, the Bible says the Lord said to Samuel, who is a prophet over Israel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now those who are familiar with the story of David know that we first are introduced to him in Samuel's quest to find the next king of Israel. King Saul was the first king named to rule the Israelites, but despite God's anointing, and his grace upon his life, King Saul succumbed to the fear of people. And because of poor decisions and failure to obey the Lord, God uh, rejected him, and the search began for another. Samuel went on a divine errand to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel from among his sons. And when Jesse was invited uh, uh, to a feast and then Samuel was with him, uh, he began to parade his sons before Samuel. Uh, we find that Jesse had actually excluded one of his sons from the party. He said, bring all your sons. Jesse, these are all my sons. Come to find out, God knew that there was one son missing. First Samuel 16, 11, God tells, uh, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And it's kind of like, it's kind of like, well, what am I going to say to the prophet? Yeah... There remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now, the question we have to ask is, why did Jesse do that? Well, we might find a clue in Psalms 51 when David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Perhaps Jesse and the family had their own way because David was not, in my opinion, a full-blooded member of the family. Uh, perhaps he was born uh, illegitimately. He was born out of wedlock. He was born, uh, uh, it could be all sorts of ways that he came into being. But his family basically rejected him by sending him out to the fields and thus se separating him from the legitimate family line. It reminds me of a similar incident that happened to Jephthah in the book of Judges when it says in Judges 11, 1 through 2, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So that's kind of what I personally envision is what's happening to David. Even though he was Jesse's 
son. He wasn't the son of the mother of the other boys, and they didn't want him sharing in the inheritance, and so in some ways he was ostracized from the family. All right. So now, that was when he was in Jesse's house. That's part of his background. Now let's, let's go a little bit further when he was finally a part of Saul's house. Saul was the first king of Israel. Of course, we know that David was anointed at that particular time with Samuel to be the next king of Israel, and subsequently we find the story advances and we learn of David killing the Philistine giant named Goliath. Like We talked about that last week. Because of his prowess in battle, Saul recruited him into his service, but more than just that, he also had an ability to be able to calm uh, the rantings of Saul whenever he would go into this demonic uh, uh, frenzy. And they'd bring David in, and because he was a skilled musician, uh, he could calm that spirit down in his life. Well, anyway, um, eventually Saul schemed to get rid of David by luring him to marry his daughter. You say, well, how is that scheming to get rid of him? Because... Uh, what he requested of David was that he would bring to him for a bridal price 100 Philistine foreskins. I know the Bible can be gross sometimes, but this, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, David brought 200. Saul's purpose in asking for that was he was hoping David would be killed and he'd never have to marry his daughter, but he did. He brought 200 and he married his daughter, right? And so here we learn of David's financial status at the time, which is the subject we're studying because in this conversation in this transaction uh, 1 Samuel 18 22 through 23 Saul commanded his servants speak to David in private and say behold the king is delighted in you and all his servants love you now they become the king's son-in-law and Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David and David said does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation see in order to marry one of the king's daughters or in that particular time uh, even even actually you know, in the early, uh, even up, up in the royal dynasties and all that kind of stuff, you would have to pay a, a bridal price. And it was not going to be something on the issue of a couple hundred bucks. It's going to be a lot of money, resources. And David said, I'm a poor man. I can't do that, right? So Saul put the provision of bringing Philistine foreskins and David did that, ended up marrying one of Saul's daughters, Michael, and became the king's son-in-law. Wow, he finally made it. He's advancing, correct? You would think. So while it appeared he'd gained much, what we see is that in a short period of time, David went from being the king's son-in-law to now being a persona non grata. I just thought I'd throw in a different language there to see if you would catch that, right? So we find Saul fully committed to killing David, and we see David now fleeing from Saul. And David was now being considered a traitor and a fugitive of the state. Of the state. And it should go without saying, but we're going to say it anyway, that David being on the lamb is without any means or any resources at all. He didn't have food. He didn't have armament. He didn't have anything. He didn't have anybody to help him. He was on the run. He'd been stripped of everything. Now... I brought us here so you get a good picture of where David was and is financially revealed to us the condition that he's in. But the good news is that's not where things stayed in David's life. All right? So no matter how bad things get with God, that doesn't have to be where it stays. So that was the first part. Now let's look at where he ended up. 
as we've already told you, David ends up being one of the richest men in history. The Bible gives us a clue regarding David's phenomenal wealth when, nearing the end of his life, he bequeaths to his son Solomon what is needed to construct the temple. First Chronicles 22:14. Behold, in my trouble I've prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold and a million talents of silver and of bronze and iron without weight. That's why I used those scriptures at the beginning as our text. Now, how much is 100,000 biblical talents of gold worth today? And I'll be honest with you, when I was uh, pulling up these figures, I don't know if they're recent figures. I know they're not 50 years ago, but I can't tell you that they're not 10 years ago. So I can't say if it's exactly what it's worth today, but it's not going to be so far off. It's so abundant, it's going to blow your mind anyway, okay? Because more than likely, it's more than this even now. So how much is 100,000 biblical talents of gold worth today? One talent weighs about 75 U.S. pounds or 1,094 troy ounces. And I, to be honest with you, I don't know what a troy ounce is. I don't know when I measure my food if it's in ounces or troy ounces. I can't tell you. <laughs> a troy ounce, which weighs roughly 10% more than a U.S. aboard deploy ounce, is a standard used today for trading in gold and silver. Based on this measurement... The total amount the king donated for the temple was 109,400,000 troy ounces. Assuming a modern gold price of 1,450 U.S. per troy ounce, is that what gold is today? What is gold today? Is it twice that? 2,000 now? So it's going to be, you're going to add a quarter at least to this. Uh, based on this, uh, assuming a modern gold price of 1,450 per troy ounce, David donated 158 billion. I don't think you're grasping. It's not a hundred. It's not 1.58 million. It's not 158 million. It's 158 billion. You know how president? How much President Trump was worth when he went into office? Between six to ten billion. He was donating his salary, which is a lot of money, but he wasn't donating 158 billion of worth of the precious metal to God's temple in Jerusalem. In regard to the silver that was provided, its total value in today's world, and again, it's probably going to be more than that, would be about $18 billion. The value of the king's fortune does not stop. Well, let me say this. Amazingly, even after dedicating vast riches to God's house, David generously added 3,000 talents of Ophir and 7,000 talents of silver. This extra special contribution was dedicated to overlaying the new temple's walls and increases his net worth by about five more billion dollars. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute. Is this his money or is it the state's money? You don't understand. When you're a king, it's all yours. It's not like a democracy. In a monarchy, everything belongs to the king. It just That's just the way it works. Okay? So anyway... Uh, the value of the king's fortune does not stop at the $181 billion. He also collected for the temple bronze, marble, expensive woods, onyx, and other precious stones, brass, and so on beyond number. He personally owned a home designed and built from the finest cedar trees and no doubt owned still other precious possessions not recorded in Scripture. King David, a man after God's own heart, was fabulously rich during his life, and his net worth easily exceeded two hundred billion dollars. Now, I want to go back and I want you to realize it's not, I'm just showing you what scripture reveals about David. 
right? I want to get fixated on the money. What I want to get fixated on is what God was able to do in someone's life. The change that he was able to make from one part of his life to the next part of his life. I don't have him in here, but consider my servant Job was a very uh, poignant uh, reference in the book of Job. And Job, who was the wealthiest man at that particular time in all the world, Satan comes uh, and through uh, uh, intrigue, steals everything he has, his finances, his family, his wealth, everything. Wife, curse God and die. And he said, should we accept? See, what the, we didn't tell you this specifically about Job. I think I may have mentioned it. But the enemy's not after your stuff. He's after your faith. That's what he wants. He wants your faith. He wants your faith in God. And a lot of times what will happen if he takes our finances, people jump off buildings. They kill themselves. They drown, right? Or if he steals your health, people get discouraged. They get depressed. They, they often want to just give up and die. There's so many things. But see, it's not that that he's trying to steal. What he's trying to steal is your faith and your hope in God. All right? And so, and so God was able to, in one, I was talking about Job. So with Job, he lost everything. And you may think when you read the book of Job that this is a long amount of time. But actually, it was, uh, so scholars think it was about nine months from the time that he started this process where everything was taken from him to the time when God began a restoration process in the life. And when God began a restoration process in, life, process in his life, you've got to remember the Bible says that he was the richest man at that particular time, the wealthiest man. God gave him double what he had. Double. Now, it's not about the money. It's about what God can do in your life. You can be at the bottom. You could be at your lowest. Job was good, and he went down. And God intervened in his life and raised him back up twice as high as he used to be. Joseph was pretty set up with his family. The next thing you know, he goes down to Egypt. And then if that wasn't enough, he goes down into the prison. He just kept going down, down, down. And then one day, the light switch was flipped, the script was flipped, and the next thing you know, he went from the lowest of the low. And in one day, it didn't happen that way in Job's life, and it didn't happen that way in David's life, but with Joseph, in one day, he went from the lowest position in Egypt to the second highest position in all the land. If God can do that with his people then, and he doesn't show partiality, and he doesn't show favoritism. Don't you think that same God, see, it's not about us, it's about God. Don't you think he can still do the same today? Doesn't the Bible say he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? And I want, I want you to know that we are children of God. We've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Well, if I was a better person. No, it's not about whether you're a better person. It's about whether Jesus is. He made you righteous. Well, you know, if I just do so and so, then maybe I can please God and this will. No, it's not about you pleasing God. It's about Jesus. What pleases God is when you believe God. 
Do you believe them? Do you trust them? So anyway, what are the keys in David's life, getting back to, to our study, what are the keys to his success? So anyway, there's probably a lot more. This is not a long study, but there's probably a lot more. I just grabbed a few of them, uh, just the things that I could think about off the top of my head. Acts 13, 21 through 22. They asked, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified, God testified, and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So, are there keys to David's success? What are the keys to David's success? Perhaps we can learn from them if we find them and seek to emulate what David practiced in his life. As we do, we might find success in our life as well. And when I say success, I'm talking about prospering. And, you know, a lot of times we do have a negative opinion because there's been so much abuse about prospering financially. But God does prosper his people financially. He prospers his people physically, emotionally. He, he's, he prospers us in all different ways, right? It's always good to remember that you can't take money with you and you can't take resources with you. But you also can't help people without them. You can do some things, but sometimes people don't just need a pat on the back. What they need is they need their rent paid, or they need a coat, or they need uh, food. And, and how do you do that? And You know, you've got to be able to provide that for them. God expects us to provide that for them, and how you do that is through finances. So God prospers his people with finances so that they can learn how to give to other people. But he also prospers us with health, emotional health, physical health mental health. He prospers his people that way. So prosperity is not a bad word. And I believe success, a successful Christian life, is living the life that God wants us to live. Not that you will never have problems, not that you will never have struggles, or you're not going to have to fight throughout your life, and you're not going to have to overcome some things. That doesn't mean that you're not successful if you have to fight. What makes you successful is if you fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Well, I don't want to fight. I, I just want to go to church and I just want to listen to a good message. Well, the point of listening to a good message is that you would, your faith would be built up so that when you go out, you can fight the good fight of faith. How do I live for God when my family's not living for God? How do I live for God when I'm working at a place where they're uh, lying and stealing and, and telling dirty jokes. How do I live for God? Right? We got to learn how to live for God. You see, we don't, we want to, God sends us into those places not to steal our faith, but to impart faith. But in order to impart, impart faith, you got to be strong in faith so that you can fight the good fight of faith so that you can share your faith. All right. So, as we look at David's life, we might find in his life things that we can emulate that will help us to, to find success as well. Maybe not a financial windfall, but I'll believe we too can and are able to see the blessings of God come as one day we also look back on our walk with God from beginning to end. I want to be able to look back on my life and see I can do that now. 
I'm 60 years old. If I live till I'm 90, 80, 90 years old, I want to be able to look back and I want to continue to see increase in my life. When I'm talking about increase, again, don't mistake for more money. What I'm saying is, can you see fruit in my life? I want to be able to go look back and I want to be able to see fruit in my life. I want you to look back and I want you to be able to see fruit in your life. I want, I want your children and my children to, regardless of what they say now, <laughs> I want them to be able to say, my, my dad, my mom were men and women of God. They lived it. I didn't realize that life is hard. I didn't realize that, you, that they were facing battles. I didn't realize, but one thing they never did, they never quit on God. And God never quit on them. And they finished well. Amen? We're, most of us in here, we're the, we're the, all, the, all the younger kids are gone, so we're the older adults. So, you know, we, we're more on the, not all of us, but we're more on the getting closer to the end of life than from the beginning of life. I hope that doesn't shock some of you. <laughs> there are two things that you can be certain of in life. If you're born in this life, you're going to die unless the Lord comes back. But I'm, I'm waiting on Jesus to come back. I'm waiting on the rapture. Well, if it happens, that's great, but I'm not betting on it. I'm going to live for God. And if I don't go that way, I'm going to still go there because I'm going to transition well. Now, I'm not, I'm not bragging on myself. I'm, I'm bragging on the Lord because if he brought me this far, he can bring me to the end. Okay? So anyway, um, long short, if I were going to sum up what David made David successful in life, I believe I could boil it down to one phrase. He honored God. He honored God, Acts 13, 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up David. As I said before, we already used this text. I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So then the question becomes, what does it mean to honor God? Well, I just went to, I went to that great theologian, theologian, one word theologian, Google. And I asked Google, what does honor mean? So as a baseline definition, to honor means to esteem and treat another with respect because of who they are or what they have done. Honor has a sense of value, price, or quality. That which is valued and esteemed is honored. Um, sometimes you know, but okay, I, I, I'm a pastor, so I'll just, use, I'll just use church as an example, okay? So sometimes when people ask me my opinion, they want to know my opinion. They want to know what I think about something. But sometimes when people ask my opinion, they don't really want to know what I think. They want me to agree with what they think, right? So they don't really honor or value my opinion. What they value is someone that will agree with them. And when we approach the Lord, to honor God means you value or honor what he says. When God says something, it means something. Not, well, I'll find out what God says and then I'll ask my friend what they say. And whichever one's more convenient for me, that's what I'll do. Well, that's not honoring God. The Bible says in James 1, uh, I'm not sure uh, if it's 2, 3, or 4, but it says, If any man lack wisdom, it might be 5. Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith 
nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. Let not that man or woman think they shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. What does that mean? It, it, to be you're double-minded. It means God is more of a, of a resource on par with other resources. Well, if I don't like what God says, then I'll go somewhere else. Kind of like, I'll go to this doctor. If I don't like this doctor, I'll go to another doctor. If I don't like him, I'll go to another one until I find the one that says what I want. Right? And it's kind of with God. I've had people come to me over the years and, and ask me about what does the Bible teach about marriage. And I tell them what the Bible teaches about marriage and, and they don't come back anymore. Right? I'm not talking about people that are remarried. I'm talking about people that want to get married. Right? I'll tell them. I said, well, you shouldn't be living with somebody before you get married if you want to be a Christian. That's unbiblical. They call it fornication. Right? So then, uh, well, what kind of, uh, let me tell you about my boyfriend. Or let me tell you about my girlfriend. And I said, well, what does the scripture say? Believers should marry a believer. If they're an unbeliever, they shouldn't. Well, they're not. They, 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 go, to, they go to this uh, uh, They'll always say, and I don't have any problems with, with the Catholic Church, but they'll always say, well, they're Catholic. They go to the Catholic Church. How often do they go? Are they devout Catholics? Well, they're Catholic. They don't think that way. In other words, and, or they might say, well, yeah, you know, every time I go, they go, whatever the case may be. But, but the bottom line is that's not important to them. But it's important to God. Right? That you come into a covenant. And here's the thing. Marriage today is not a contract. It is a covenant. And it's not a covenant that's based on whether you make me happy or not. It's a covenant that says, I'm going to give you 100% regardless of what you do. That's why these words used to mean something. For better or for worse. In sickness and in health, we're going to stick together. We're going to work it out. We're going to walk it out. We agree to do life together. So much of what is uh, demonstrated to be a successful marriage today by the world is, are you happy? And happiness is fleeting. It's good to be happy. I'm happy sometimes. My wife is happy sometimes, but we're not happy all the time. We both came home today, and the dogs got into the trash. We're not happy. Why didn't Anna come home first? I'm not happy. Why didn't Rick pick that up? I'm not happy. <laughs> I'm just being a little lighthearted, but what I'm trying to get you to understand is happiness. If you make happiness the reason to stay married, you won't stay married for very long. But there are wonderful times of marriage. There are great seasons of happiness. But sometimes, but that's not why we get married. When we get married. So anyway, I will tell people this stuff, and that's not what they want to hear. They're already living with somebody. They already have someone in mind. And it's not about what God thinks about them. It's they have a good job. They look great. Well, 
Marty and I can tell you, at one time, we used to look pretty good, too. <laughs> All of that fades. Bye-bye. Right? I remember the first time I went to church conference with my, my, uh, my brother-in-law. And I just, it was so, it was so revealing. And we're sitting in a certain section, and, and they recorded the service, so we bought the service. And it's panning around. I said, where are we? Where are we? And I look over there, and, and I see light reflecting off somebody's head. And I said, who is that? That's me. <laughs> Never seen that part of myself before. Because <laughs> when I was younger, man, I had ooh, hair coming everywhere. So. But anyway, I got off. Let me get back. So what makes you successful in life, remember I said in the book of James, um, you know, but let him ask in faith. What does it mean to ask in faith? It means that you're not double-minded. You're not using God to just support what you want to do. You're not just trying to find out as one of many options what God thinks, but you really want to know what God thinks because you believe that God has the answer to how to live life. And if you hear from God, you're determined to do it. So what did honoring God look like in David's life? First of all, he put God first. It was all about God. He was going to live for God. He worshiped God. He served. Did he make mistakes? Absolutely. But when he was confronted with those mistakes, he repented. And he said, I always remember the story when David has, he's a king, has everything, has Many wives, lots of money, uh, doesn't have to go to fight anymore. But his job is to fight. So one, I think it's First uh, Samuel 11, he decides not to go to battle, and he sends the army to battle. And while he's sitting at home, not doing what he's supposed to be doing, he notices a woman bathing on the rooftop, uh, gets aroused, sends for her, commits adultery with her, she gets pregnant, and so David... Uh, 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 finagles a way to be able to kill her husband so that he's not find, found out and then marry his wife and have the child and think everything is okay. I want to tell you something. That's bad. No matter how you look at it, no matter how you dice it, that's like bad. That's not just Hey man, I had a uh, you know uh, uh, you had a uh, an infidelity. You had a a bad no. It, not only you tried to cover it up by killing somebody, and the one he killed was one of his thirty mighty men, one of those closest to him, murdered him. I want to tell you, God thinks different than we do, because He sends Nathan the prophet to him, and he comes in with a parable, you know. And he said, hey, there's this guy. He has lots of sheep. I don't have much more to go, so I hope you're okay with me kind of relating a little bit. So anyway, he said, there's this guy with a lot of sheep. He has so many sheep, you know, and he gets a visitor, and he wants to feed the visitor. And there's another person under his household outside, you know, kind of like a surf type uh, person. And he said, he's only got one sheep. 
But this sheep, he becomes close to the sheep. He treats it like it's his own family. It eats at his table. It sits on his lap. He really loves the sheep. Well, the rich man didn't want to take one of his sheep, and so he goes and takes the sheep from the poor man, kills it to feed the guests that he had coming over. And David's enraged because he used to be a shepherd. He's enraged. He said, that man should die. Nathan turns around and he said, you're the man. And you know what David does? He kills the prophet. Is that what he does? No. He repents. And the Lord forgave him. Well, what do you mean he forgave him? He killed somebody. He committed adultery. He did this. He did that. But his heart was to honor God. You see, God doesn't think like we do. We sometimes tend to think about uh, the, the severity of what we did, and the Lord's not looking at the severity. What you did is wrong. Everything that we do that, that violates God's will is wrong. But what the Lord is looking for is your heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. Acts 13, 22, I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. So even when he sinned, and he was confronted with his sin, he could have killed the prophet. But he didn't because he honored God. Then the Bible says, Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But you know what's really funny? People say, yeah, yeah, I seek God first, I seek God first. And if I do a teaching on tithing, they never come back. Right? Why? <laughs> and they'll always say, well, you're a money, you're just a money-loving preacher. You're just like every other preacher. You just want my money. No, I don't want your money. I don't get your money. Money goes into the church coffers. Money goes into the, into the, into the church bank account, not my bank account. It's not about me at all. It's not about the church. It's about the Lord. Do you honor God? Do you reverence what he says? I, I've said this before, and I'll say it over and over and over again. When I first got saved, I was so impacted by the presence of God, if they'd have told me, they could have told me anything, and I would have done it. They said, go to church. I went to church. They said, pray. I prayed. They said, read your Bible. I read, your, read my Bible. They said, give. Dumb me. I started giving. What a fool, right, to believe them. No, I wasn't believing them. I was believing this. And the Lord's been faithful. I've tried to honor God in my tithes. I've tried to honor God with my attendance. I've tried to honor God in the way I read his word. I've tried to honor God by how I live. And God's been faithful. Have I been perfect? No. I haven't. And neither of you. But we strive. If you have a heart for God, you strive to do what's right. When you make a mistake, you move on. Uh, on the flip side, I used to have a problem when I first got saved. I used to have a problem... Um, forgiving myself. So the Bible says if you confess your sin, he's faithful just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse all of But when I first got saved and I would mess up, oh man, I'd be in the dumps for days. I'd, oh, I can't believe I did. It's horrible. What a terrible. And of course, the, I didn't know at the time, the enemy's there just egging me on. Right? And then one day the Lord spoke to me and he said, Rick, he said, what does my word say? If I confess my sins, you're faithful just, you cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. I know I mixed two scriptures in there, but I'm just, you know, I know what your, your word says this. And he said, so if I forgive you readily, but you 
put yourself through a process to forgive yourself, in some ways what you're doing is you're putting yourself above me. You don't believe me. And I had to learn how to believe God. So when I mess up, I confess my sins, and I believe that his word teaches me that he forgives me. So why do I have to beat myself up if he doesn't beat me up? I believe his word. I'm forgiven. Now, other people may not forgive me, but that's not on me. That's on them. God's forgiven me, right? And that's what's important. I'm not saying there's no room for restitution. There's no room for saying yourself. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the relationship between you and the Lord, okay? So anyway, he put God first. Second thing he did is he inquired of God. He was a man of prayer, right? And uh, uh, just three, three scriptures, and there was more than this. Three scriptures, 1 Chronicles 14.10. David inquired of God. 1 Samuel 38. David inquired of the Lord. 2 Samuel 2 and 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. He was up, bring me the ephod. Let's ask God what we're supposed to do. Right? How many of us can say the same? I'm not pointing the fingers at anybody. I'm just saying, how many of us can say the same? We do everything we can, and when we have no other recourse, then we pray. Oh, it's so bad, i got to pray. When the Lord is more than willing to give us the answer to the situation that we're in. I've, I've told you this uh, before. Some of you are new, but when I was in seminary, I was going through a Greek class with a friend of mine. And, and you have to do homework at night. So anyway, at night, there's no teacher. And we're all students, so we don't know. That, you know. So anyway, he comes back to the next day. And he says, do you know God knows Greek? I said, huh? What are you talking about? He said, yeah, God knows Greek. Okay. He said, I had a really hard time with my homework, and I didn't know what to do. And I said, God, can you help me out here? And God revealed the answer to me. God knows Greek. Well, it makes sense when you realize that he gave the languages to all of us. Where'd they come from? From him. So sometimes, not mentally, maybe, not in the way we theorize, but practically, we live like God doesn't know. Or he may not have the answer. And in reality, he knows everything. And he wants to help us in our walk with God. The Bible says, uh, ask, in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, ask, and if he's in a good mood, he'll give it to you. Ask, and, you know, you catch him at the right time. No, it says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone, now how many of y'all can find your place in that word? Well, everyone, but not me, is what people say. Well, God heals other people, but he doesn't heal me. God will answer other people's prayers, but he doesn't answer mine. Now, we may never vocalize it, but sometimes we live that way. But the Bible says, everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. And again, the book of James, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, that's me, let him ask of God. I'm reminded of the story with Peter and the fish. Remember tax collectors, does, you, does your master pay 
tithes to the temple, and Peter says, yeah, yeah, we all pay tithes, yeah. And Peter said, why'd you tell him? And Jesus said, why'd you tell him that for? No, he didn't do that. He said, he said did you tell him this? Yes. He said, okay, well, since you stepped in it, we might as well pay the tithes. And so he tells Peter, here's, here's what you need to do. Go get a line, go down to the sea, the lake, whatever. It's a sea, but they call it a lake. And then he said, drop your line in it, and the first fish you catch, there's going to be a coin in its mouth. Take that coin and pay your taxes in line. So the Lord spoke to me one day about that. He's like, he's like I learned a lot from that one little, one little picture. God has already made provision for every situation that we're in. He'd already made provision for Peter and himself. God had made it for Peter and Jesus. He had already made provision for that. And so the key is to not ask God to figure out how to get you out of your situation. Because he already knows your situation, and he already knows multiple ways to get you out of your situation. So that's not the key that we need. What we need is not for God to figure out a solution. What we need is revelation. We need to know the plan that God has already made in eternity past. What is your solution, God? You see, that's what Peter needed. He needed revelation. He would never have found that provision without revelation from God. And God's made provision for us. But we may never find the provision without revelation. Well, how do we get revelation? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. So David, the reason he found success in life, and again, we're talking about specifically his finances, but it's more than that. It's, not, it's, really, it's really about in his walk with God. Is he inquired of God? And not only did he inquire of God, you know, a lot of people will ask God, but the second part of it, they don't do so well, which is David, when he heard from God, he obeyed God. He did what God said to do. Acts 13, 22, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. See, Solomon would hear what God's will was. He would hear from Samuel, but he wouldn't do it. David would hear the word of the Lord, and then he would do it. James 1, and then verse 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, because when you do that, you're only deceiving yourselves. And then in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, he's talking about the word of God, and perseveres in it, that's the context, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, that one will be blessed, not in his knowing, but in his doing. And then Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, See, we forget that second part. We think, oh, he's blessing the one who hears his word. No, it's the one who hears his word and does them. And, you know, you can hear the word of God and do it in one area of your life, and you can be blessed in that area of your life, but you may not, you may not hear him, or if you do hear him, you may not do what he says in another area of your life. And we're not talking about whether you're going to get to heaven or not. We're talking about having 
uh, the blessings of God and, and being successful in certain areas of your life. So you can actually be very successful in one area of your life and not very successful in another area of your life because in one area you do the will of God and the other one you don't. The goal is to do it in every area of our life so that we can live an overcoming, victorious Christian life. Not a problem-free life, but instead of life ruling over us, we learn how to rule over life. I can be happy in whatever circumstance, well, let me say, I can be joyful in whatever circumstances that I'm in. I can live on fire for God, whatever comes my way. It can be a struggle sometimes, it can be a fight, but I can live for God in the middle of it, trusting in God to bring me through it. Not in my own strength. See, don't, don't, uh, sometimes I use these words and you think I'm doing it, and I mean to say to my own strength. No, it's trusting God and His faithfulness to bring me through. That's really what faith is. This is not going to bring me down. It might take me to heaven, but it's not going to bring me down. It's not going to bring me down. Whatever I go through in life, I trust God that he can bring me through. Paul said, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. His life would be an interesting study sometimes as well because he was beat, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was in prison. Didn't look like he was very successful. But at the very end of his life, he says, I've kept the faith. Got his head cut off. Right? Well, he wasn't a very successful Christian. Really? I think he was a very incredibly relevant example to us as a people of what it means to live an overcoming, victorious life of faith in the midst of difficulties. All right, last thing is he gave to God. All right, and that's really where we started. First Chronicles twenty-two fourteen. with great pains I've provided for the house of the Lord. See, all this stuff that David had, these billions and billions of dollars, he gave them to the Lord. Well, if God gives me this much money, I'll give it to him. Do you give it to him now? The Bible says if you're faithful with, then you will be faithful with much. We think when I get much, then I'll be faithful, but I won't be faithful now. That's how we think. But that's not how the Bible teaches. So if I, ha if I had $200 billion, I'd gladly give $150 or $180 billion to the Lord, would you? Right now, when you don't have it, you say you will. But when you have it, you'd be surprised how that thing starts talking to you. Well, you know, there's so much other things we could do with that money, right? And the church has not been very faithful with the money. If we gave it to them, it'd just ruin the church. It'd just ruin the people. It would do all, and we find all different ways because there's an enemy there talking to you, trying to keep you from being. But David provided. That's why we use the scripture. He gave incredible amounts of resource, and it's not about the amount. Don't get hung on that. It's just instead of the resources having him, he had the resources, and he used it to further the kingdom of God. Uh, Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty 
and your vats will be bursting with wine. Luke 6.38, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And I, I'm done, but I, I just one last story. I, 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 I like to drink my coffee. I, I love coffee in the morning, and I, but I don't like it black. I actually like a little bit of coffee in my creamer. So I, I, I was told, because I used, I used, now whether it's true or not, I don't know. I, I used to use a lot of coffee make creamer. And, uh, you know, I thought oh, it was just better, you know. And to come to find out, it's probably not as healthy for you as half and half. But half and half is a little hard on the stomach. And I have this lactose half and half, so I'll figure out how to do that. But my point is that I don't just pour it because you realize, you know, you think, oh, it's only got, you know, 35 calories per teaspoon. And not realizing you're pouring half a cup in there. So you think you're pouring 35 calories in there, but it's really like about 350. So I got this little tablespoon thing, and I go, one, two, three, four. <laughs> so I know it's 20, 40, 60. I know it's 80 calories, right? But what I'm using is a little bitty tablespoon of a measure. All right? The Bible says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So if I use a tablespoon for a measure, you know what God's going to use for a measure? A tablespoon. Oh, no, no, no. God, you need to use a bushel. I don't know what a bushel is, but I'm pretty sure it's bigger than a tablespoon. And the Lord is like, well, if you want me to use a bushel, then you're going to have to start using a bushel. Is it scriptural or not? Well, I don't have faith for that. He's not asking you to have faith for a bushel. He's just asking you to give. But the scripture teaches is that uh, to the measure that we use is how it will be measured back to us. So what we want to try to do is grow in our faith. Right? Sometimes, look, just to give 10% is a challenge for some people. But what you'll find is that it's a, it's a command, but it's also a challenge. What you'll find is that as by faith you begin to give, God begins to bless you. But oftentimes what happens is we no longer give by faith anymore. And faith is what honors God. And so a lot of times what, what I would, I've, I, let me just use myself. What I want to learn how to do is get a, I get around people that are, that are givers and I realize how poor of a giver that I am. And when I get around people that give better than I do, I, I get challenged to give more. I just do. And so I want to learn how to give more. I want to learn how to give more by faith. It's my personal walk. I'm not asking you to do the same, but I want, to, I want to give by faith, right? If I don't have faith for that, it's okay. I'm giving what I need to give, but I want to grow in my faith with the Lord in every area of my life. And so I want to learn how to give with a bigger measure, all right? So anyway, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 8, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm always reminded of John Braden. He says, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take it from a grump. No, just kidding. Anyway, today we looked at the life of David. In particular, we looked at how the rejected shepherd boy of the household of Jesse went from having nothing to within a period of 40 years being one of the wealthiest individuals in the history of humanity. In doing so, we briefly looked at keys to David's success, He's, we sought to sum up what made David successful in life and suggested that it boiled down to one succinct phrase. 
In short, the key to David's success was not his position or even his resources. The key to David's success was his heart. He had a heart that honored God. God said he was a man after God's own heart. Thank you.